So we start today with some kind of interesting news. By the way, this is uh, Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. It is a little bit later than usual, so I apologize. Um, But anyways, (laughs) the Associated Press notes... A divided Colorado Supreme Court on Tuesday declared former President Donald Trump ineligible for the White House under the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Act and removed him from the state's presidential primary ballot. This is interesting, and I've talked about this before, but this is the first time that the justices have voted for the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment which is you being used to disqualify a presidential candidate. And the AP writes here, a majority of the court holds that Trump is disqualified from holding the office of the president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Obviously, this has to do with January 6th and his role in January 6th, the attack on the Capitol. And let's just remember that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, also known as the Disqualification Clause, bars any person from holding federal or state office who has took an oath to support the uh, Constitution of the United States, but then has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid to enemies thereof. I mean, look, in a perfect world, you guys know I, I think Trump is dangerous. I talk constantly about how a second term of his would be disastrous. And I'm going to focus most of this episode speculating on 2024. We're going to do my 2024 episode looking ahead, some predictions I have for 2024. But obviously a main factor of 2024 is whether Biden or Trump wins, because I think this will be a huge inflection point in the United States if Trump wins again. We will probably turn away from our allies. The U.S. will become more isolationist. Our enemies will be empowered. And for probably the first time since the 1940s global order that the United States helped create, we will see a change. We will see a duopoly of nations. We will see global insecurity. And I think Trump would help um, escalate that quite quickly. So, of course, I don't want Trump to be president. But I, I personally think that Trump is a political problem. And the courts, as much as they try, are not going to be able to silence this. And I don't know how I feel personally about disqualifying Trump because, I mean, of course he's going to claim that this is an attack on democracy. I mean, Alina Haba, Haba, his uh, legal spokeswoman, she said in quotes Tuesday night, this ruling issued by the Colorado Supreme Court attacks the very heart of this nation's democracy. It will not stand and we trust that the Supreme Court will will reverse the unconstitutional order. Of course, you can already just hear how divisive I think this will be. And this is not me saying Trump isn't guilty, but he still hasn't been found guilty yet. I mean, obviously, I think he is guilty of what happened on January 6th. He helped light the match on January 6th, no no doubt about it. But that being said, this is just going to be even more divisive and just lead to, I think, more chaos if you have, I mean, deny it all you want, but you know, there's a good percentage of the American population that is planning on supporting him. And Trump's side is going to use this as a very vibrant attack against the deep state, against our institutions. They're going to call the Democrats now the dictators, even though Trump's the true authoritarian here. And again, Trump is a political problem. He won the election. There were millions, tens of millions of Americans that voted for him in 2016, even more in 2020, though he lost to Joe Biden, obviously. And you can't just say, oh, we're going to disqualify him and this issue is going to go away. So this to me is kind of a 
basically a conflict between the Constitution and our electoral system because they are completely opposed in this because he is the popular candidate on the right. And so I don't know if just using our courts to try to disqualify him is going to end this issue, and it might actually escalate political tensions, civil discord, all of the above. And so I'll probably cover this as, as we know more, but this is going to be, it's, it's going to be appealed. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. From what I've seen, a lot of people think this probably won't won't hold up. So I know a lot of people are dreaming, a lot of people are happy, but obviously this could go one of two ways, but I think it was David Pakman who said, the interesting thing about this is, is that you are seeing the Colorado Supreme Court acknowledge that Trump is guilty. So you wonder if other state Supreme Courts and maybe even federal courts start using this decision as a means to say, okay, it looks like there's a recognition that Trump is guilty. So there are other legal ramifications to this, no doubt about it. But I just don't know if this actually holds up going forward. But of course, if it did somehow, it would be huge because then you might think maybe there's a cascading effect where other states take this up. And before you know it, maybe you do have Nikki Haley coming out on top just because Trump can't really win when he starts not being able to even be on the ballot in many different states. So this is a Look, look, this, this year just keeps getting more and more fascinating, more and more chaotic, more and more interesting, but we'll have to watch and see, but I did, did just want to mention this before we keep going here. Anyways, moving on, basically I want to do my year-end predictions for 2024. I should just note that when we're talking about 2024, pretty much all of it is linked to what's happened in 2023. No shit, of course, right? But... I will just start by saying 2023 was one of those years. 2021 was the year that started out with January 6th, but we also saw mass distribution of the COVID vaccine. And I think there was some hope that maybe Trump's off-ramp would begin. Republicans would turn on him. Joe Biden would bring us back to some, some form of normalcy. 2022, you know, we see the world kind of turn into a chaotic situation, more or less, after the invasion of Ukraine. And since then, we've seen nine coups in African countries. We've seen the war in Ukraine get closer to a stalemate. We've seen, you know, what's happening now in Israel and Gaza. And we're seeing Trump, Trump return. The The resurgence of Trump in 2023 is probably one of the most fascinating things, because we had the midterms back 2022 in November, And it looked like Ron DeSantis was the guy. Now, I remember telling my dad about a year ago in December, I was like, I keep hearing reports that all these commentators that actually meet Ron DeSantis say he's not good. He's not a good politician. He's not relatable. He's not likable. And that seemed to slowly become true. And then you you see the Stormy Daniels Manhattan case, Trump's first indictment. And it seems like pretty much the, the switch is turned on and all of a sudden everyone starts rallying back to Trump. And it's kind of insane to see the amount of, amount of momentum that Trump has picked up again. And, and now we have a party where the speaker is MAGA Mike Johnson, who is against funding Ukraine and literally is one of the architect, was one of the architects of the legal 
a Texas case to basically make sure Biden wouldn't be president to try to overturn a free and fair election. And it seems like now the crazies are in the cockpit. They are now flying the plane and pretty much the worst fears that the David Frums and the bulwark types have been talking about for a long time, they've all kind of come true. I mean, David Frum in 2017 talked about how Trump wasn't going to go away. In 2020, he talked about how Trump wasn't going to go away. And it seems like that is now the case. And the, the inevitability of Trump is really growing. And Ruth Ben-Gat, who is a great um, scholar, historian, who writes about authoritarianism, she's warned a lot about how inevitability is sometimes what leads to authoritarianism and just exhaustion. And what I mean here is that you need to sound the alarm about authoritarianism. You need to sound the alarm about the radicalism that is coming. But you don't want to tell the population that it's inevitable, that you can't stop it, that it's a force that is so swift that nothing can stand in the way, nothing can stop it. Because then the population just thinks it's inevitable and gives up. And so we're in an interesting time right now where it does seem like Trump's at least Republican nominee situation is inevitable. But I, I keep trying to remind myself that him being president is not. And people like me, never Trumpers, kind of center left, center right. I kind of dance back and forth on that. But people like me need to just kind of dance a very fine line here, which is warning about Trump, but also saying we still have agency here. We still have the ability to make sure this doesn't happen. And we don't want to become complacent with the inevitable doom of a Donald Trump 2.0. So that's kind of where I, I think I think 2023, what I would say is Israel, Gaza, very bad. Taiwan looking worse. Russia has evaded sanctions and has got closer with countries like Iran and China. There's there's not a lot that actually unifies them other than their disdain for the post-World War II order. And that is something kind of fascinating to watch. And you've also seen coup after coup in Africa. The African population seems to be somewhat going along with some of these governments. We are seeing the humanitarian crisis in Sudan getting worse. And obviously, we have a situation in the United States ranging from the border to inflation to just partisan division that are really going to make this year pretty, pretty damn bad. And so, or made 2023 pretty damn bad. And on top of that, you had some of the worst, worst people like George Santos and Bob Menendez just showing how rotten and broken our Senate is and our House is and just how our politics is in general. So 2023, while I had hope, I think in 2021 and 2022, 2023 gave me a, a kind of a regression. Anyways, 2024. I'm going to give you probably four, four or five of my biggest takeaways. So let's start with the United States. I already started by talking about how the Colorado Supreme Court has taken Trump off the ballot. I think that will be overturned. That would be my hot take. But other than that, basically what I would say in 2024 is that America's election is going to be key and we will see United States news, United States politics dominated by the American presidential election. And it's going to poison everything in the United States for the next 12 months. The world is not only going to be watching, but Americans are going to be watching. And I genuinely believe that this election is going to determine what America's role in the world is going to look like. And that ranges from Israel 
to Ukraine, to Taiwan. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> and this also could impact other elections. And what I mean here is that India, arguably the biggest democracy in the world, I mean, by population, yes, India is facing a huge election in 2024. And the conundrum there is that Modi is more Trump-like than Biden-like. He's definitely leaning more into authoritarianism. He is eroding their democratic institutions as well, attacking Buddhists and Muslims in the country and becoming kind of a, well, he always has been a Hindu nationalist, but that's becoming more and more clear. And as he's become more radical, the problem is that the economy is doing really well and India's status in the world is doing well, but then we've also seen those those assassinations on Sikh figures in places like Canada, reports of one foiled in the United States. So India's role in the world is changing as well, getting cheap Russian oil, by the way, as well. And it looks like Modi might potentially win again, most likely will win again, and you will see him probably double down on some of his worst tendencies. So that will be something interesting to watch. And then, as I said as well, America's leader is going to be important when we look at what Africa is going to look like in 2024, because there have been, I think, I think there was six coups in 36 months, ranging pretty much across the whole Sahel region. That's the region below the Saharan desert, kind of in, I guess you could say North Central Africa, ranging from, from Chad to Sudan, just to name a few. And it seems like Africans and when I say Africans, I mean the African population of some of these countries, they are souring on democracy and because it's just not working out well. And we're seeing a very young generation, a huge population boom that may be just starting to actually support some of these military governments because there's not a lot of good alternatives. And The Economist notes that the most elections of 2024 will be taking place in Africa. We're looking at places like Rwanda, where it doesn't look like there's even going to be a free or fair election. So that's going to be interesting. And I think the United States is an important canary in the coal mine to see how this plays out and how the U.S. responds and how it, do we lead by example or do we go along with these nutbags. And so America's election is key. And also, you know, I talked about this a little bit. Michael Bennett has that great piece in, uh, in, in The Economist talking about how different our media is now than before, where there isn't a common set of fact anymore. There isn't a common agreement on truth or on just a baseline of what is true and what is false. And so this election is going to be just tainted by misinformation, disinformation, artificial intelligence, targeting specific audiences. You'll have people tuning in just to Tucker Carlson, people just tuning in to the New York Times, to CNN, and it's going to make information hard to really gather and understand. And so the American election is going to be very toxic. We're less than a year out, which, by the way, is insane to me that it's already been over three years now. Well, not, not over three years. I mean, Biden was inaugurated in January, but you get my drift is that we're almost to this. And the Biden White House is not really acting all hands on deck. They're not completely freaking out yet, but it, it is worrying. And, you know, we just have so many, we have so many known unknowns going into this election that it's going to be pretty fascinating to see. The next thing is the global insecurity is, I think, going to be seen more in 2024 than in 2023, which may be hard to believe, but I do see that as a fact. And Patrick Fells, a foreign editor for The Economist, talks about the idea of the zone of impunity and how it could expand. 
And he has a really good piece I was reading earlier talking about how 2024 is likely going to be marked by more global insecurity than we've seen in quite some time. He writes about how 2024 is going to be kind of the make or break year for the post-World War II global order. Some examples that I would give to this, China and Russia obviously want to subvert this post-World War II system. And the American election could be the final straw that breaks the camel's back that allows them to really keep doing this. You also have a few other conflicts that I think are kind of illustrative of this is like, for example, you have Iranian proxies flourishing from Lebanon to Yemen to Iraq. You, You also have, like I said, from the Red Sea to the Atlantic, six African nations that have seen coups over the last 36 months. I talked about this before, but you have Armenia and Azerbaijan literally holding some sort of ceasefire or peace agreement after fighting a war involving ethnic cleansing of the Nagorno-Karbakh region. No one's really talking about it. There hasn't been much pushback, but you've seen Russian kind of, Russia, sorry, kind of pull out of the area. Peacekeeping has been pretty quiet. You've also seen the rise of kind of far-right nationalism in Serbia again, a lot of instability in Kosovo and in Serbian parts of Kosovo. The Kosovars are not thrilled with the Serbs. That is not good either. You also then have the trio of trouble, China, Iran, and Russia. South, I mean, North Korea kind of could be put into that, but I don't take them seriously enough right now to really say that that, like, that, that is a huge threat as well. But as I said earlier, China, in, China, Iran, and Russia don't exactly have that many shared interests. But their Venn diagrams, or I guess you could say like a 3D Venn diagram, multidimensional Venn diagram, they do intersect in wanting to discredit the United States and kind of discredit the world order that's been created in the West. And... You've seen China and Russia collaborate in the tech sphere, in the military sphere, avoiding sanctions, crypto sphere, oil sharing after the invasion of Ukraine. But you have to wonder if they start collaborating more in the tech and cyber arena, which I think could be a very big possibility going forward. And you, you also then at the same time, though, could see instability in these three countries because As they've, like, this is always a problem with authoritarian regimes, especially paranoid ones, is that leaders like Xi, Putin, and and the the Khamenei in Iran, they don't have clear plans or paths for succession because there's a paranoia that keeps them purging subordinates and afraid of anyone who is striving for power. So there's, like, Russia, for example, has had a brain drain, a talent drain, where progressives, moderates, the intelligentsia, the younger generations are either suppressed or have fled. She, I've, I've heard examples where like the lights are on, but there's really not a lot of intelligence home because she has consolidated so much power. And the same can be said in Iran with a Khamenei, who there's really no plan on who would secede him and he's getting older. So this could lead to instability and uncertainty if you do have a younger generation that's angry and a leader who is consolidating power without any plans for the future. So you have that mixing into this fun little cocktail. And the hangover could be bad from drinking too much of this cocktail. And back to the Patrick Fells piece in The Economist, he also says that history books 
if things go poorly, say we do have like a Donald Trump and this trio of trouble growing, you could see where like history books don't talk about the post-World War II order anymore, but instead they talk about the post-2025 order. And what will that look like is the question he has. And that, that's a scary question, no doubt. So, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Um, the next one is the Israel-Palestine conflict. I think, I think you kind of have two scenarios here. There's been instability for decades. Well, like half a century would be more accurate. I think for the first time now, we're seeing one of the worst conflicts between Hamas and Israel, but generally also Israel against kind of the existence of what we're seeing as the, the current Palestinian statehood. And I think this next year, we will see whether peace or chaos will come. I have so many questions here, like what happens to Netanyahu after the conflict? He must resign, in my opinion, must be booted from office, <coughs> excuse me, because his whole narrative has been security for stability. And yeah, I might be a hardliner. I might be kind of a radical, but I keep you safe. And that narrative has gone completely to the wind. And so this is a time where you are going to need to see basically something else come up from the ashes in Palestine that is more democratic more willing to listen to the Palestinian people. But at the same time, you will also need an Israel that understands that you can't keep bombing and killing, and you have to finally have a line where you say enough is enough. And I don't think that happens with Hamas still in power. And this is going to be a very, very important moment for U.S. foreign policy. The U.S. is going to need to be very involved in here, and that's again why a Trump presidency, a Trump 2.0 presidency would be, I think, very detrimental to this. But getting into more of the Israel-Palestinian conflict itself, my first question is, like, what is the leadership vacuum in Palestine going to be like? I think in 2024, we're going to learn what happens if Hamas leaders are killed, but also the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is kicked out of power which is very likely because the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is not popular. Mahmoud Abbas is <laughs> old, corrupt, and useless. And so I, I do think it's inevitable in 2024 that we see the IDF, Mossad, whoever, whoever it may be inside of Israel, it does kill the Hamas leaders. The ones in Qatar, yes. The ones in Gaza, yes. And I think you do see backlash against the PA as potentially Hamas gains more power because the polling before October 7th and the polling now of those that can be polled of Palestinians, it does show that support for Hamas is growing, which makes sense. But I, so I guess the question is, if you kill Hamas leaders and the PA is kicked out of power, does this lead to better leadership or worse? I'm kind of cup half empty on this one. I think, I think it gets worse because of the amount of death we're seeing and the desperation and hatred that we're seeing, I don't think this leads to a better democracy in Gaza. I think it leads to more militant extremism. And if it is the latter, then you see Israel still concerned about safety and still aggressive towards groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, another group in the region. 
and maybe towards Hezbollah as well, because again, Israel will not rest until it sees safety achieved. And that line, I don't know if Israel's been able to directly define what that line is and how to reach it, basically. And also then at the same time, though, if Israel doesn't take out Hamas, and if Hamas survives in some form, it will just bring Hamas legitimacy in the region. And it will also bring support for Hamas to more Palestinians. And this could be bad for peace going forward because then Hamas may become a symbol of resistance. And this also could be true then if Israel loses international support, maybe stops the war earlier than it wants to because of Western pressure, because of the United States pressure, because of the indiscriminate bombing that is clearly happening and clearly war crimes that are being committed. I don't go as far as genocide yet because I think right now in the fog of war, it's really hard to disseminate what is exactly happening. But one way or the other, I think Israel continues to lose international support going into 2024, and it is forced to kind of pull back. And this, in a sense, is a victory for Hamas. And I think that does happen. Because again, Hamas is already kind of winning the narrative war, the propaganda war, whatever you want to say. And of course, Israel's not helping their case when they're killing all these innocent children. There's no, there's no way to talk around that. But at this point, if this happens, which I think is a, it's a very good chance it does, Israel could look weak. And then you could also see groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon maybe start to become more reactionary. There's also reports I was reading just today from Foreign Policy to The Economist talking about how there are reports of Hamas trying to get more power in the West Bank. So this is a really tough moment here where you obviously want a two-state solution or a multi, basically a pluralistic society in that region, but either of those will not work and there'll be no possibility if we keep going down this road right now. And of course it takes two to tango. I've always said that it always takes two to tango. But the thing here is that if Hamas, basically if Israel tries to do the right thing and kind of halt some of its massive attacks, then Hamas looks strong and becomes a resistance figure. And then maybe you see a growth of militant activity towards Israel. But then if Israel keeps doing what it's doing, it also loses global support. So it's a really tough one. And the other question here is then, when does Israel become satisfied? If it keeps getting aid, and it keeps doing what it's doing, and it keeps killing Hamas leaders, but also thousands of civilians, like when is enough enough? And the key here is the Biden administration, hopefully the Biden administration, well, it will be the Biden administration for 2024. The Biden administration must keep pursuing diplomacy if any transition towards peace is going to happen. And again, I think there's some interesting arguments to be made that this is kind of a schism. It doesn't have to be a violent, bad schism quite yet, but it could be. And this is, I think, the year that we're going to really see if there's any hope of maybe embracing the Abraham Accords going further, bringing Palestinians to the table, maybe helping the PA get more power, or does Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad create some sort of new coalition? And then also you have to throw in the drone attacks and missile strikes on the, on the Red Sea through the Suez Canal. <sighs> I just sigh. I just sigh. And I should also just add, I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but <laughs> according to a lot of polls, only 11% of Palestinians polled actually want the Palestinian Authority to be the one that inevitably leads or is the new governing body of whatever comes from this. 
And, and that's a problem because the international community, especially the Western-backed, like United States, Britain, you know, countries like that, the, the Palestinian Authority is the one that everyone is saying, like, that's probably our best solution here. So you have just another opposition between both of those that is not, not great for peace. Speaking of, speaking of not great for peace, the last thing I want to talk about is how 2024 is going to be a huge moment for the future of what happens in Ukraine. The reality here is that the United States can no longer be trusted as the country that's going to help streamline foreign policy to help Ukraine. It can no longer lead Europe and bring together different actors in Europe, ranging from Olaf Scholz to Sunak in in the United Kingdom to Macron to, I mean, the crazies like Viktor Orban. It's, It's going to be interesting to see, but the U.S. no longer can lead Europe in defending and aiding Ukraine. So in 2024, I think we're going to see a huge point in Europe. And we're going to have to see if Europe can actually step up and understand the importance of this war. I am not one of the ones who thinks that Russia goes into Poland or or any of the other NATO countries because of Article 5. But I do think we could see Russia potentially go into Georgia or the Transnistria region of Moldova, annex Belarus. Those seem much more likely. By the way, Alexander Lukashenko, the last dictator of Europe, the leader of Belarus, he has another quote-unquote election. So that will be interesting to see. But anyways, I just have worries of a, pro, of a prolonged stalemate becoming more and more likely. And I guess the reality that we're going to start to see more in 2024 is that Ukraine was underprepared for the counteroffensive that it literally was hyping up for months and months and months. And now some European countries like Germany are low on tanks and other defensive weapons because of this. And you are seeing Ukraine kind of internally struggle because when when things are going well, it's easy for the Ukrainian government and Zelensky's government to be cohesive and unified. But when things start going poorly, they start pointing fingers. And that's what we're seeing right now. And we, we will also, I think, I hope, I hope, <laughs> we will probably see that Russia isn't really winning or doing much either. That is my big hope. Yes, Russia has some of the southern and eastern regions that are on the coast. Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea, the battling is significantly worse than before, and we know Russia is willing to just keep throwing people into it. But you have the internal issues in Russia where do parents start asking what's happening to their kids and and if it's worth it for their kids to keep dying? I know the Russian government's willing to pay these families enough to be quiet, but does that persist? I don't particularly know. But also we have to remember that even though Russia, you know, has put up quasi-Russian governments in these regions, it doesn't really control them either because they're still fighting. And it doesn't look like it's going to be able to easily control these regions. So you can't just say, okay, well, Russia gets these regions and Ukraine takes the rest of the country back. It also seems like 2024 will be the year that we find out about, like whether the world forgets about Ukraine. Not... not blatantly forgets but makes an active decision to forget moves on 
focuses on the economies and on internal politics and immigration and nationalism. I'm talking about you, America. Or does the world double down and understand that Putin cannot get away with this? He cannot get away with these actions. And that's where I stand on this. Also in 2024, we're going to need to remind voters throughout the West that there's also an economic argument at play here. There's an economic policy argument as to why Putin and Russia cannot succeed in this. If Russia, I mean, sorry, if, if Ukraine gives up the parts of the country that Russia currently is trying to take, it's going to be dire for Ukraine's economy and the world economy because most of the regions that Russia is trying to take are on the coast and they're important trade networks and shipping networks. Think about all the chaos that we've seen since 2022 involving shipping grain out of Ukraine. I mean, Poland was literally shutting down borders crossings because cheap Ukrainian grain was tainting Polish markets. We saw Poland get more angry at Ukraine than ever before because the Black Sea, where all this grain is shipped out of, wasn't able to get out there. So it was going through European borders, trucking routes, you had border closures and chaos. That's bad. Famines also are hitting Africa, so the need for grain from places like Ukraine and Russia are, are quite key. And of course, Recep Erdogan in Turkey has been trying to broker this, but Turkey's also one of these actors that's trying to wait out U.S. influence and try to find a find some some form of an alternative here. And so if Russia can control the coastline, it'd be good for Russia, but really bad for Ukraine and, and Europe and therefore Africa, the United States, South America. It would all just be significantly bad because it would create more bottlenecks. And if we're looking also at what's happening in the Red Sea right now, mixed with potential worries of escalation in Taiwan and in the South China Sea, also talking about Venezuela potentially trying to annex parts of Guyana. All of this just leads to a complete shit show. And one would have to imagine also in 2024 that if Trump is reelected, his 24-hour peace deal, as he calls it, it'd be good for Putin and it would be bad for Ukraine. I don't Trump's been very contradictory on this, but when when like my rule of thumb in, in foreign policy is if you ever have a leader that says they can fix something quickly when it's a really complicated issue, it's because they're going to grant one side something and, they're, and, and the other side is going to lose because you don't end a conflict with nuance quickly. Nuance is the enemy of a rapid de-escalation. I do think that Trump could end our involvement within 24 hours. But what he doesn't understand is that this is not going to actually end the war. It's just going to change things entirely and change the, I guess you could say, the power dynamic. And it's also going to embolden, it's, it's going to embolden countries like Turkey. And I guess you could say Hungary would be the next one. And maybe even India to maybe say, huh we can actually just be blatantly anti-Ukraine. So, I, I mean, I think the Israel-Palestine conflict is going to be more complex in 2024, but I think 2024 is going to be probably the most important year ever for U.S. influence and for what happens in Ukraine. And those are intertwined at this point because, oops, sorry, I bumped the mic. But whatever happens in our election is going to then 
impact, I think, how Ukraine is addressed. And it's also going to, I think it's going to impact how China then acts with Taiwan and with what it calls aggressors in the South China Sea. So I think as Fells talked about in the, in the Economist from earlier, we are going to see a very insecure world, a very unstable world. And that does trouble me. And so, again, <laughs> I've been beating the drum on this for a long time, but I'll say it again. Biden is Biden's not my favorite, but he he needs to remain president, unfortunately, because the alternative means I think the U.S. has a huge realignment on the global stage and foreign policy is kind of my thing. And I, I don't want to see a kind of pragmatic isolationist regime when the world needs us, when the world needs stability. So anyways, let me know your thoughts. We will, of course, see. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. And as always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Sorry I sound a little bit less energetic. It's later. Had a had an office um, retirement party. And I didn't get to run today. First day in weeks I haven't ran. So my energy levels are just all over the place. So I got to shower and go to bed. So adios. Thank you.